When you get acquainted with a country with the help of a native guide, you get clued in to the many little things that make it fun to make new friends. Germans are crazy about biking. I think maybe for the first time that Germans are really respectful of the Dutch because the Dutch are even more obsessed with bikes and they wish they could all be a little bit more Dutch. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Fabian Ruger points out what makes Germany distinct from its neighbors, region by region. And in the middle of Turkey, there's an area that's famous for its rocky landscape of fairy chimneys and cave dwellings decorated with Byzantine murals from centuries long past, where you can still sense the shadows of ancient times in a dusty hillside village. Güzelyurt is a place, it feels as if time stopped in the 12th century AD. Nature-wise, it's nothing to compare with. And we'll start out with your calls with listener travel reports about visiting France. Come along as we explore our world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Open your eyes on an early morning bus ride through the middle of Turkey, and you'll swear you're dreaming when you see the colorful rock towers of Cappadocia. Two guides from Turkey open up the sights of Cappadocia for us a little later in the hour ahead. And we'll also get acquainted with Germany, region by region, with the help of a guide who was raised in Berlin. That's all coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. On last week's show, our two guests helped us better understand French culture from the inside out, and that's inspired a few listener calls on the subject. Our number is 877-333-RICK, and we're talking about visiting France. Eric's on the line in Winter Haven, Florida. Eric, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Great. Uh, have you had some fun in France? Give us some ideas about enjoying France. Well, unfortunately, I have not, but my wife has been twice. Uh, she went the first time uh, with her senior class, and she was hooked. She has some uh, family ties history-wise to France as well. And then she went back. Her brother was uh, over there for a few years, and she went back to visit him. And um, I studied from here on the Louvre, which is my lifelong dream is to, to tour the Louvre and, and to see every possible display, which I know that's a huge task, and I've heard that it would, could take up to six months. But she just absolutely loves the ambiance. She loves the, the uh, atmosphere. She loves the architecture so you and want, the, the history. You want to see every display in the Louvre? Uh, that is a lifelong dream of mine. You know, Have you ever but, seen the building? It's huge. Yes, I've seen it on the Internet, yeah, well, and I know it is <laughs> huge, but I would love to, like, even if I could just spend six months to see every possible one. I know some of them aren't yeah. open to the public right. and things like that, but well, that's on my bucket list, so to speak. You know, in its day, it was the biggest uh, building in the entire world. I can imagine that. It, and it it's looks packed massive. with art, and just between you and me, Eric, a lot of it's kind of mediocre. Oh, really? So if you wanted to spend six months doing something really exciting, I would not move into the Louvre. <laughs> Give yourself maybe three days to go, come and go to the Louvre. Remember, when you buy a ticket to the Louvre, it costs about 10 euros, 9 or 10 euros. It's good to re-enter all day long. And I believe Wednesday and Friday the Louvre is open until 9.45 at night. So it's very quiet and peaceful in the evening. So if I was, uh, you know, hell-bent on seeing a lot of the Louvre, I think I would uh, scatter visits over the course of a week-long visit to Paris, and I would do it in an hour or two at a time stretches, and I'd, I'd come back different times of the day and for sure take advantage of Wednesday and Friday evenings when you can stay till almost 10 p.m. Yes, that sounds fantastic. Well, my wife kind of makes fun of me whenever we go to museums of any kind because she always accuses me of reading every sign, even the entrance and the exit sign and the the signs are pointing to the restroom. So I read everything there is to read in museums. And so that's why I thought it would take quite a while for me to see all well, that I wanted to it, see. It would. It's a beautiful building, so don't, don't neglect actually recognizing it as a palace. Some of the rooms are more impressive as examples of a divine monarch palace than they are for the exhibits that they hold. There's lots more than paintings, too. You've got great statues from antiquity, and you've also got the crown jewels of France. You've got the uh, beautiful... Uh, crowns and regalia of leaders of France from Charlemagne right up to Napoleon. So you've got an exciting uh, item there on your bucket list, but uh, don't try to see every single exhibit in the Louvre. There's so many other great museums in and around Paris that you could uh, get a lot more mileage out of your, your energy. So good luck, Eric. Well, thank you very much. It was great to talk to you, and I love your shows. Thanks, Eric. Happy travels. You too. Diane's on the phone in Warren, Ohio. Hi, Diane. Thanks for your Hi, call. Hi, Rick. Hi. 
we're talking about France. Do you have any ideas about France or Paris? Well, I think uh, one of the best things um, I ever did when I went to Paris was I'd do the touristy thing in the morning, mm -hmm. and then in the afternoon I would sit down at one of the cafes. I would just pick a cafe along the way back to the hotel, and I would just sit there, and they would give you a glass of wine, and sometimes I'd have, you know, pickled olives or nuts or whatever, and I would just sit for an hour or two and just watch the people. It, it was fabulous. You know, I think that is one of the best tips you could possibly give about enjoying Paris. It's, mm. it's such a Parisian thing to do, isn't it? Oh, it is. It, it's wonderful. I wish we could uh, do that in America. <laughs> I miss that aspect of France when I come back to the United States. I mean, we have our cafes and so on, but right. uh, there's something about the ambience of a Parisian cafe. Yes, yes. And you can go every different time of day. You've got a lot of neighborhood cafes where you get the sort of the character of each neighborhood. And Paris really is a collection of neighborhoods, and you pick that up when you enjoy the cafes. You do. You can tell and you can see the difference. And if you know where to look, there's all sorts of little insights into the community you've got right there. Of course, you have to have a little bit of uh, cafe etiquette. You need to know what to order and, and how to order it. But True. I, I find people there kind of give a tourist a, with the right attitude a little, cut them a little slack and, and help they them out. They do. Yeah, they're, they're very nice. And when you're, when you're sightseeing in Paris, it can be a little overwhelming to absorb all the things that you've just seen and experienced oh, and right. to be able to sit down in a cafe and, and make that part of your discipline of enjoying your vacation in Paris is to absorb it with the locals enjoying a break in a cafe. Yes, that's the time of day then, like you said, I would sit down and I would journal what right. I did during the day and remember what I saw because I knew I would forget if I didn't do it. Do you sit indoors, at the bar, or outdoors? Outdoors, definitely. Okay, and what's a favorite cafe experience? Oh, um, probably it was one afternoon right when I came from Versailles. I had spent the whole day at Versailles, and mm -hmm. I finally had to sit down. And it was probably about 4 or 5 o'clock. And a lot of the moms came along with their prams and their babies. And some of them would stop and sit and, you know, talk with each other or just stop in front of the cafe and talk to one another. That, that was so cute and so charming. I love that. And a lot of cafes have wonderful pastries and elegant macaroons. Did you ever try the macaroons in some of the cafes? That is one thing I did not try when mm. I was there. I'm going to the Champs-Élysées. There's a famous cafe right there that makes macaroons that will... Turn you into a macaroon uh, fan. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I go back. All right, Diane. I'll put thanks, it on my list. <laughs> thanks for your call. I'll see you at a uh, cafe in Paris. Yes, thanks, Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. We're checking in with you, our listeners, with travel reports about France. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Or you can post a short travel report in our online message boards to share with everybody else. Look for it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And Cheryl's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Doing well. What are your thoughts about travel? Well, I actually had a question. I am planning a big trip to France in 2012, um, a month-long trip with the idea of staying one week in four different places, and I've been to France before, but I've never been to Normandy or the Dordogne regions before. Oh, yeah. And so I was looking for recommendations on a good base where you can drive out from and visit other places in the region. So you'll have a car? Yes. Yeah, because both of those regions are just delightful, but frustrating with public transportation and, and much, much nicer by car. So let's think, the Dordogne and Normandy, both are well worth a week each, in the Dordogne, it's sort of like, you know, in Germany, people are enamored with the Rhine River Valley uh -huh. and, the, and the Moselle. That's sort of the Rhine and the Moselle of France, I think, the Dordogne. A uh, highlight for me is renting a canoe and going down the Dordogne River, which is sort of the, the heart of that region. There's little companies that drive you up the river and pop you in, and you canoe down at your own tempo, and when you get back to your starting point, uh, you turn in the canoe and you're on your way. Oh, that sounds like fun. It's great, and you can do it for one hour or eight hours, depending on what you like or any, any amount in between. You know, if you're going by public transit, Sarla, S-A-R-L-A-T, is the best city. Uh -huh. But with a car, if you want something charming, I would recommend Bainac, B-E-Y-N-A-C. Okay. And that's right on the Dordogne River Valley. And you talked about food. Boy, anywhere in that part of France, you're going to get great food. And any good mm -hmm. guidebook to that region can turn you into some great restaurants. But, but Bainac would be your charming small-town home base. From there, you could enjoy the cuisine. You could enjoy touring incredible castles. There's a wonderful castle right there. 
of course, a big dimension of the Dordogne. This is D-O-R-D-O-G-N-E, I believe, Dordogne. Uh-huh. It's the prehistoric caves. This is uh, where yeah. the Magdalenians lived 15,000 years ago. And you can actually get yourself sort of psychically in touch with these Cro-Magnon people if you go to these caves. You'd want to kick it off with a trip to the great new prehistoric museum in Lazizes. And then the most famous cave, I think, in all of France is Lescaux. And it's closed, but there's a perfect copy cave right next to it called okay. Lesco 2. And you have to get a reservation for that, but you go through and you don't know it's a copy. And it's just, it's called the Sistine Chapel of the Prehistoric World. It's, it's wow. really quite an experience. And uh, then there's countless other prehistoric sites that you can visit, depending on if you're interested in carvings or paintings or, or whatever. Boy, there's plenty to do in the Dordogne. Now let's go north to Normandy. Uh, the Dordogne is south near the, near the Pyrenees Mountains mm-hmm. at the south part of France. Uh, Normandy would be the west coast, named uh, for the Normans, the, the Vikings that settled there a long time ago and then were assimilated into the culture. Of course, Normandy is most famous for the Normandy beach landings. And if you're at all into World War II, you could make Bayeux your headquarters. Okay. And that, that was the jumping-off point for uh, William the Conqueror when he came over from Normandy, uh, the Norman conquest of England. So you've got the Bayeux Tapestry there telling about that invasion from France to England in 1066, and then you've got England to France in World War II. Jeanne d'Arc was burned in uh, Rouen, R-O-U-E-N, and and that's a beautiful town to check out. In a lot of ways, the Impressionist movement was sort of born in Anfleur. It's a charming little port town, Anfleur, H-O-N-F-L-E-U-R, And you always find painters there with easels set up, and you can just imagine the first Impressionist painters, you know, a century or so ago, with their rallying cry, out of the studio and into the sunlight. The sunlight there, it just makes you want to be a painter. And right on the border of Normandy and Brittany is Mont Saint-Michel, so you got to check that out too. So you got lots of uh, things to do (laughs) for two weeks in Normandy (laughs) and Dordogne there. Well, I'm definitely interested in the Normandy beaches where the World War II landings took place. So it sounds like... Bayeux? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Bayeux. Nearby, Aromanche is the best town to understand the, the D-Day landings. Okay. Aromanche. I think the best museum for World War II is the town of Caen, C-A-E-N. Okay. Be sure to go to the big American cemetery, and then, you know, go to the German cemetery also, because that's quite evocative, and it's a reminder that, you know, this is towards the end of the war, and it was just kids that were fighting... I mean, it was just German teenagers that were just, you know, dragged into this war, and uh, and it was just a slaughter on both sides. And it's just quite an evocative experience to go to Normandy and remember those difficult days and the, and the heroism of the Allied troops as they made that their toehold and began the big push to Berlin. So if I wanted to do a loop, I mean, stay in um, Bale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Each of those towns has such beautiful charm and wonderful hotels I'd really spend two or three nights in each town. And the, oh, okay. the three towns to do would be Anfleur, Rouen, and Bayeux. Oh, that's a good idea. All right. Okay, thank you so much. Let I us, really appreciate it. Let us know how your trip goes. Happy okay. travels. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Next, we cross over the Rhine River into Germany with a guide who will help us understand the regional differences that, when put all together comprise today's Deutschland. 877-333-7425. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. When we travel through countries of Europe today, we're often looking at sites that date from a time when those countries didn't exist yet. For example, in 1850, there was no Germany. 
just a collection of small German-speaking countries, each with their own distinct and rich heritage. The modern European powerhouse that we know today as Deutschland has been knit together from lands with many disparate influences. To help us better appreciate the regional variety within Germany, we're joined by historian Fabian Ruger. Fabian was born in the Rhineland, raised in Berlin, and is completing his PhD in German history at Stanford University. Fabian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. When we think about traveling to Germany, a lot of travelers just think this is Germany. But when you go to Bavaria, for instance, you're looking at the uh, crown jewels of the Wittelsbach family that ruled Bavaria for 600 years. Tell us about the regions of Germany and what we should understand in order to properly understand our sightseeing there. To probably best understand it today is if you divide the country into a, a kind of mental grid. There's the old north-south divide between the Protestant and Catholic German lands, mm-hmm. um, the north being more Protestant historically and uh, the south being more Catholic. Mm-hmm. And that brought with it certain cultural traditions. Um, you know, Catholics tend to have slightly better wine at their mass. That's at least what the Protestants said about them. And, of course, the uh, Catholics then uh, made similar jokes about the Protestants being very boring and not being able to really enjoy their lives. So Germans have this kind of cultural landscape from north to south. As a German, you think of the southern part more like uh, the difference between Italians and Germans, I suppose. More enjoyment of the moment and better wine and, and a little slower lifestyle. Yes, there is a mutual, um, I wouldn't say disrespect, but there is a acceptance of a mutual difference that has probably been historically formed. How does a Bavarian look at somebody who's from Hamburg in the north? See, the Bavarians are, you know, in many ways like Texans are uh, in the United States, that in their mental map of their country... Texas is the biggest state. So for Bavarians, Bavaria is Germany, and everything north of that are really the weird people, the Protestants. Whereas if you, you know, I went a little bit to school in, in northern Germany, and there they speak of what they call the, uh, the white sausage border. That's uh, where people start eating white sausages. Ah. That's Bavaria. And so if you are, from the perspective of Hamburg, too far south of Hamburg, you are beyond the white sausage border. So, And the Bavarians love their white sausage. Absolutely. <laughs> I've noticed that. I mean, I've, I never realized that the whole region was known as that's the zone of the white sausages. Yes. Fabian, we've got this north-south division, which is like north-south in a lot of countries. You've also got east-west. The east-west division is, of course, clearly the remnant of the Cold War. And we still have to see how long that division will remain a marker in German culture. You know, so it is fading away, in other words. I think so, but it will last longer than we have anticipated it will. It's just been a couple of decades, and it's a huge economic undertaking for basically West Germany, the size of the state of Oregon, to incorporate East Germany and become the size of Montana, and then invest in this horrible mess that the generations of communist rule left Eastern Germany and bring the infrastructure up to speed. Mm -hmm. But in my recent travels in, in former Eastern Germany, I'm impressed that the infrastructure seems to be there now. Yes, the investments have been massive. There is now a feeling in West, in the western parts of the country that there should be an end to these investments. They have done their share. They have paid their dues. And in other words, now, it's time for the East Germans to start working hard and earning their keep. That's, that's often the Western feeling now. I think it's just going to be an economic process that will take a little more time. Was it a good investment for Germany to take on the East and incorporate it into the uh, country at large? I guess that depends on the perspective. If you're an East German, definitely. If you're a West German, you might say maybe not so much, but in 30, 40 years, yes. It's interesting to me that Germany was united in 1870, and it was sort of a latecomer to the League of, of European Nations. And my reading of things was almost that the German intellectuals and, and the people pushing for the establishment of the modern German nation had to almost dream up mythological ancient roots of Germany to justify this nation. And they stirred all sorts of epic kind of poems up that made Germans feel like, yes, there always should have been a Germany. Like most nations in Europe, there's a projected past that is not invented, but that overemphasizes certain aspects of the cultural To past. legitimize your To legitimize the current uh, government or the current rulers. And of course the Germans did that like most nations did in the 19th century, but they had to do it uh, with a very strong emphasis. And that's why they went back almost to Roman times and to Germanic tribes that never really were in any modern understanding German. 
to claim that they were Germans, just like Portugal, for instance, claimed that they derived from the ancient Lusitanians who fought with the Romans, even though that is a completely made-up invention. The same is true for Germany. How does the fact that Germany was divided by the four victorious allies after World War II impact Germany today? You had a French zone, a Russian zone, a British zone, and an American zone. Each of the Allied forces left in their areas, I think, strong cultural roots. There's certainly a much better taste for wine in the French zone. Americans left a very good taste for jazz, zones around Frankfurt. The British zone has a strong tendency to look, you know, across the channel and look more at Britain, for instance. Um, And interestingly, in some areas in the British zone, the system of government in the cities is slightly different and more along a British tradition. Huh. And those are certainly all... And the heritage of the Russian zone. Oh, the heritage of the Russian zone, I would say, is more of an economic... Sort of an enthusiasm for communalism there, I suppose. Subsidized public transit and so on, or not? That's certainly true, but the West Germans have a, have a taste for that too, also, I think. Okay. Um, there is a, of course, stronger look towards Eastern Europe. And East Germans clearly understand, because of the Russian presence there for 40 years, Eastern Europe better than the West Okay, Germans. so the, the people who live in former Eastern Germany have closer ties and more empathy for and understanding of the Czechs, the Poles, the Hungarians, and, because they and were all together Russia. in the Warsaw Pact. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Fabian Ruger, and Fabian is uh, a Berliner who's joining us today to talk about the regional differences in Germany. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. John's on the line from Painesville, Ohio. John, thanks for your call. Thank you for having me on, Rick. Um, I'm planning in my pre-planning phase of going to Germany next year. And I know where my family's from, and i like to know they're, they're from Baden, and I believe the village is Munchweiler. And it's funny you were talking about the um, German unification, because my great-grandfather died in prison being a Drugenier for the Bavarians. <laughs> I have an old picture of him, and I had it translated. How would I go about finding out something like that? First of all, what is a Drugenier? A dragoneer. A dragoneer. What is Fabian? What is that? Yes, that's uh, it's a cavalryman, usually. Oh, yeah. so he was a cavalryman in the Bavarian army. Yes, and he died in prison. <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of people in prison in the middle of the 1800s <laughs> in Germany. And, and so your question, John, is questions about ideas for visiting the Black Forest area. Yes. This is the area in Germany right along uh, the French border. Yes. And Fabian, how would you characterize that region? Um, it's beautiful. It's old. It's got a fantastic landscape. You know, in in landscape terms, I would almost compare it to Vermont or Maine. Hilly, foresty. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. If some German is uh, just burned out and stressed out and uh, a little bit depressed, don't a lot of doctors say, you need to go to the Schwarzwald? Oh, yes, very much so. You can actually get government funding to go take a month off and do the whole (laughs) spa thing in the Black Forest? Indeed. You convalesce in the Black Forest. That's what the Black Forest is perfect for. John, have you been there yet? I have not, but I'm going. I'm into family genealogy, and, and uh-huh. most of my family's from Germany. So. Great. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll find a warm welcome there and lots of uh, excuses to relax. <laughs> I hope so. Um, and if you're looking for genealogical sources, um, every town in Germany has sort of a citizen registry, and that's mm-hmm. where you might want to start if you want to do genealogical research to find out where your great-grandfather uh, was. Would that be through uh, the city uh, hall in the town? Yes, that's, where, that's the way to start, and they'll certainly help you on from there. Well, John, you know a lot because you know your family left Munkweiler in the 1860s, and I'm yep. sure you go to Munkweiler and, and drop by the city hall. They're the rat house, and you can uh, make some connections. All right. Good luck on your travels, John. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Dick's on the phone in San Anselmo, California. Dick, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick and uh, Fabian. Uh, Yeah, Fabian, I uh, was in uh, Germany for about 10 days in the fall of 2009, and my first stop was in uh, Dresden. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, got off the train and started wandering around, I thought perhaps I'd headed the wrong direction from Prague and ended up in Italy. I had a feeling I was actually in Italy instead of Germany. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could comment on why I had this sort of illusion of being in the wrong country. <laughs> yeah, Dresden has the uh, fantastic old city architecture of a what seems really like a Renaissance city. It really feels like that. Um, the Saxonian kings built a wonderful 
place for themselves. So speaking of regions of Germany, this would have been like an independent country called Saxony exactly. with its own king, and his capital and palace would have been in Dresden. In Dresden. Yes. And for a little background, Dresden, of course, was firebombed in World War II. Wasn't that sort of tit-for-tat? Um, Coventry was bombed or something, and Dresden right. was bombed. Yes. Because Coventry was a, a cultural and historic treasure in England. Dresden was a cultural historic treasure in Germany. Incredible firebomb, and the beautiful uh, Frauenkirk in Dresden, the cathedral there, was uh, destroyed, and with an international effort, rebuilt. We visited several years in a row. Just a, what a triumph for humanity yes. to come together That's on true. German soil, you know, the bad guys, and rebuild this incredible church in the interest of peace and let's all live together. Yes, absolutely. It was a wonderful effort. Um, donations from the United States, from Great Britain, and from Germans together to rebuild. Now, I understand there's a little bit of controversy in Dresden because Dresden has chosen some sort of a modern bridge over its UNESCO World Heritage Site status. Right. The political problem there was that if you are elected a uh, chosen to be a UNESCO World Heritage Site, as the old city of Dresden was, then you must not change architecturally the old city. But the city of Dresden needed a new bridge for the citizens to cross the river with. And therefore, they had a pole in the city, and the citizens wanted a new bridge. Now, the UNESCO therefore decided that if that bridge actually gets built, Dresden must lose its UNESCO heritage status. So the United Nations was basically saying, stay cute, stay old, and we'll, we'll honor you with this status. And the local people said, no, we've got an economy to build. We need this bridge. Right. And consequently, it was democracy over quaint beauty. Exactly. And tourism, I suppose. Yes, well, maybe that, not, because people have to get into Dresden, right. and it's a yeah. wonderful city. Right. And it's still beautiful, despite a new bridge in the Dresden Valley. You, you know, you can travel there now and make up your own mind whether you think it has lost any of its beauty because of the new bridge. Well, I agree with Dick <laughs> in, in San Anselmo. Dresden is one of the great cities in all of Germany, wouldn't you say? Yes, and, and the thing that was puzzling to me is there seemed to be very few American tourists there. Uh, my guess is that most of them are blowing right through Dresden on the on the Berlin to Prague train line and mm-hmm. not stopping at all. I, I I stayed two nights and I thought, God, I should have I should have booked more time here. There's a number of great cities that a lot of people skip: Leipzig, Dresden, Nuremberg. I just love Nuremberg. Oh, beautiful. The old city of Nuremberg. And, and Nuremberg. now it's connected with a very fast train from yes, Munich. exactly. Yeah. Dick, thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Annette's on the line in Albany, Oregon. Annette, thanks for your call. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to recommend to any of your listeners bike touring in Germany. We've gone twice now in Bavaria and toured once along the Romantic Road and then a second time from uh, Bodensee to Konigsee. And it was just marvelous. The scenery is absolutely incredible. And the German people are just wonderfully welcoming uh, and friendly to bikers. It's such a nice way to get to meet people because you're much less intimidating when you're on a bicycle than when you're in a car or a bus. (laughs) Great advice. And Fabian, comments on biking in Germany. Oh, Germans are crazy about biking. They just love it. They would love everyone to use a bike, even though it produces a lot of cars. The whole country is becoming so more and more respectful of bikes that I think maybe for the first time that Germans are really respectful of the Dutch because the Dutch are even more obsessed with bikes and they wish they could all be a little bit more Dutch. Germans Uh, want to be more Dutch when it comes to bikes. (laughs) I know from my experience on the Danube River, on the Rhine River, and on the Mosul River, beautiful bike paths along the riverbank. There's this incredible network of bike paths all over the country. It's just amazing. And the times that you do have to go out on the road, the German drivers are very bike-aware and very, very respectful of bikers. Did you drink Apple Shirley? That's my favorite. I don't drink alcohol, so I'm a big Apple Shirley. How did I know that? I just had a hunch that you would love Apple Shirley because that's my favorite when I don't want an alcoholic drink. I want something refreshing. Uh, apple juice is a little bit too sweet, but Apple Shirley. Fabian, what is Apple Shirley? Apple Shirley is um, a mixture of regular apple juice and the other half is uh, sparkling water. And it's a beautiful, refreshing drink anywhere in Germany and easy to say, fun to say. Apple Shirley, bitte. <laughs> and my husband has gotten addicted to the Rodler, which is uh, 50% beer and 50% lemonade, yes. which sounds absolutely horrible, but he said it's really great and refreshing, and it doesn't interfere with your concentration when you're biking. Yes, and it's very, very healthy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Spoken by a German, I'll tell you right here. Annette, thanks for your call. Thank you And happy much. biking next time you're in Germany. <laughs> thanks. 
Fabian, there's so much to talk about in Germany. It's a, a fascinating and more diverse country than a lot of people would recognize. Talk just for a minute about the different historic regions and the loyalties and the dialects and so on that come with each of these regions. Oh, that's a long list. I'll, I'll try to go through a few. Um, the northern Germans, which are very dear to my heart, over the centuries, part of the Hanseatic League, built beautiful, small trading cities, which give you a kind of a Dutch feeling. Uh, to the rest of the Germans, the northern Germans live on a flat land and also have this flat, sort of um, laid-back accent in their Germans. And what would there. the name of that region be? Schleswig-Holstein is okay. part of it, and then the north of former East Germany, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. Oh, okay. um, so basically along the German coast. Um, Up by Denmark. Exactly, south of Denmark, okay. along the German coast. Saxony, talk about Saxony. Saxony has an old and long history, pretty much like Bavaria, and has a, um, an accent that most Germans like to make fun of, but it is a very very funny and kind of uh, you know, peaceful accent. Okay, if I'm and, from Saxony and you want to make a character of my dialect... Um, <laughs> um, okay, that's a difficult one. I can, do a, I can do a better northern German if you want me to. Okay. Um, if you say, for instance, I would like a beer, please, in German, in high German it would be, ich hätte gerne ein Bier. A northern German would say, ich hätte gerne ein Bier. You can almost smell the sea in that sentence. Which, yeah, uh, which and it I sounds really almost like. a little bit Danish. Yes. It has and a, then in it has Bavaria, a how would you say with the Bavaria? Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. So high German? Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. Northern German? Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. Bavarian? Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. Swiss? Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. <laughs> so you can tell where somebody's from just by yes. listening to him order a beer. Yes. And uh, the Northern German dialect is very popular, actually, among non-Northern Germans. Bavaria is really almost a country unto itself with a very strong patriotism for Bavaria. And the other Germans are therefore sort of, they sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed by Bavarians. So if you talk to a Bavarian and you say, where are you from? He's more likely to say his region rather than Germany. When, you know, speaking to people from other countries, they would, of course, say, we're Germans, we're from Bavaria. Okay. And it's, you know, it's, it's very similar in a, in a way to, to Texans, As who said. would say, uh, yeah. you know, we're, we're Texans. Well, Texans and, are more likely to have a T-shirt with the Lone Star State on it, and I suppose Bavarians would be more likely to have their Bavarian colors. Yes. It's the blue and white checkers. It's the blue and white, and they, you know, might even wear lederhosen, which you do not wear, really, outside of Bavaria. Oh, lederhosen is exclusively Bavarian. Almost exclusively, All yes. right. Fabian Ruger, we're learning about Germany. Thanks so much for joining us. It hectic eine Bier. Say that again. Ich hätte gerne ein Bier. Danke. Speak low when you speak low. Our summer day with us away. Too soon, too soon. Speak low when you speak low. Next, we focus on a single region, a part of Turkey. It's a land where ancient empires have left centuries of impressions. The area's been called Cappadocia since the ancient Persian Empire times, centuries before Christ. If it helps, think Arches National Park in Utah, then add in a few Byzantine murals in climate-controlled underground cave cities, plus a few donkey-driven carts in sleepy, timeless villages, and you're getting close. Two guides from Turkey help make the picture complete. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. I love traveling in Turkey, and of course, Istanbul is one of the great cities on this planet, but the magic of Turkey is in the countryside, and for me, the most accessible and exotic and memorable chunk of Turkey is right in the center, in a region called Cappadocia. Cappadocia, and that's what we're talking about today, joined by two friends from Turkey, two Turkish guides, Lali Aran and Taylan Tashbashi. Lali and Taylan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting, Rick. Now, Lali, when you think about Cappadocia... Describe the, the wonder of this terrain when people are traveling through there. Why is it exceptional? Oh, Rick, there is so much to say about it. But first, I want to tell you my very first impression of Cappadocia. I remember the first time I visited Cappadocia with my parents. It was many, many years ago. I was a child. And I had fallen asleep in the car as we drove. And my parents woke me up as we arrived in Cappadocia. I opened my eyes, and I wasn't sure if it was still a dream or we had arrived there. It was like following the white rabbit. I just could not believe my eyes. It was so spectacular. Those magical pinnacles dwarfed me, 
And I just couldn't believe. It's like it, it felt like an ice cube rolling down my spine gave me goosebumps. And because of these fairy chimneys. Fairy chimneys, the landscape, it's, it's undescribable. Well, you have to describe it because I we're on the to radio. Describe <laughs> it. Um, it looks, some parts of it looks like sand dunes of different colors. Yeah. But they're not soft. But they the, are rock eroded by the wind. That's why it looks like wavy, like the sand dunes. Thailand, how would you describe the Cappadocia countryside that, that Lali um, was so impressed by? Actually, uh, Lali was really good <laughs> yeah. describing it all. Uh, Nature-wise, it's nothing to compare with. A lot of people say they look phallic. They, don't they? They, you wake they up do, and yeah. There's a big, tall shaft they do. with a bigger rock on top of it. And why do you have a bigger rock supported by a skinny shaft of sandstone? It's because this area is formed with volcanic debris. And inside the volcanic debris, we have harder stones such as basalts. Okay. That remained the way it is while the rest is washed out with wind and rain and other... So the wind and resources. the weather makes these pinnacles skinnier and skinnier with the big rock sitting on top. Exactly. And you wake up and you think you've just had some sort of a crazy dream. Uh, my first time I went to Cappadocia, our guide got us there after dark. So in the morning, we woke up and we looked out the window, what is this? Now, what really compounds the wonder of this place is all the troglodyte settlements. People living in caves today and people living in caves a couple thousand years ago. Lolly, tell us about the people who live in the caves of Cappadocia. When you think of ancient living, people used whatever they had to live in, whether it was trees to build homes, whether it was hatches to build roofs. And in Cappadocia, it was the soft volcanic rock that they could dig into and live. Even if they could cut the stone and make stone blocks to build, they didn't prefer because... The caves carved out of the volcanic rock preserved the heat year-round. Ah, so it would be warmer in the winter and cooler in the exactly. summer. Exactly. Nice. The area is about a 1,000 meters above the sea level, and it's dry. It's cold in the winter, hot in the summer. But when you are in a cave carved in a volcanic rock, the temperature is constant around here in 61 Fahrenheit. Is there something about this rock that when you cut into it. It's easy to cut into, but when yes. air gets to it, it becomes it, hard. Yes, it hardens. So it's perfect. It's made to order for economic construction with crude tools. Exactly. You've got a history with these troglodyte settlements. Thailand, tell us about the very earlier communities that lived in these underground settlements and settlements built, dug into the walls of these cliffs and so on. We can say that uh, there have been occupation around uh, in Cappadocia since the Bronze Age periods. Which is what centuries, roughly? Which is around like 2000 B.C., 3000 B.C., wow. roughly around, mm-hmm. starting from 3000 B.C. onwards. So these people were looking for shelter that they started digging underground cities or rock cliff houses. There's the obvious idea that you get out of the weather. Is there also an idea that you get away from your enemies? Of course. Uh, because the rock is very soft that you can carve, people carved underground cities to take shelter in war times. And these underground cities, they expanded them as their necessity increased. So you as dig another put, level down when you have exactly, more children. Exactly. There are underground cities that go eight floors down eight on the ground. Eight floors down. And which can accommodate approximately 5,000 people at a time. Whoa. They are huge. It's like an ant's hole, but actually for people. But actually, from an invader's point of view, hiding out with a few very discreet entryways. Exactly. So you could have uh, a handful of entryways that would be camouflaged seven or eight stories deep, Mm -hmm. 5,000 people living Mm -hmm. down there as various groups of marauding invaders go over and look, where are those guys? And they're all holding their breath very quiet underground. And in these underground cities, there are churches, there are wineries. The production, the life continued. I'll never forget my first visit, Kaimakli. What do you see when you go into the underground city of Kaimakli? The first level you enter to, you enter into the stable where they kept the animals. Because life had to go on, even if they had to take shelter, they needed their animals for their milk, for their eggs, for their meat, for transportation now and then. And they had cellars, storages. You get to see a church. You get to see places where the wine is, grapes are crushed. Life continued, but only under the ground, not above the ground. It's amazing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about troglodytes in the center of Turkey, Cappadocia, one of the most evocative and magical landscapes anywhere you could find as you travel. 
Uh, our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at com. And Gail's on the phone in Chicago, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks, Rick. Have you been to Cappadocia? Yes, I have. I was there in 2008. How would you describe this landscape that we are uh, trying to paint a picture of? It was otherworldly. It was like being on another planet. It was amazing. But probably the best views we had of it, we did the underground tours. We saw some of the cave dwellings that people still live in today with the satellite dishes outside. Quite elegant. I thought it was like better homes and caves, you know. (laughs) But uh, one of the highlights of our whole tour was the hot air balloon ride. Now tell us about that. Um, It was a little expensive. A bus picked us up at our hotel at like 4 in the morning. Because of the winds, you need to do it early in the day. And we were taken to a field and went up in the balloon. And amazingly, as the sun was rising, all these balloons were also rising in the air. There had to be 20, 25 different, different balloons. Now, I understand that, uh, first of all, it's a little bit expensive. What would it cost for one person to take a balloon ride across Cappadocia? It was about $200. $200 per person. How long did the ride take? Um, it was a good hour that we were in the air. Okay, and I understand also that a, a reputable company basically does one ride a day in the morning when the air is um, safe. Correct. So what it was like floating over all of these... Uh, fairy chimneys and troglodyte communities. Paint us well, a picture. Well, we had, the um, view was amazing to see all of this from a different perspective. And we did have some men on our balloon that urged the driver to take us up even higher. So he took us up to probably, I think he said a thousand feet. Huh. Which was really... <laughs> Can they control where they're blowing or they just go wherever the wind blows them? Um, they can control it with putting more hot air in, makes it rise higher. And well, that's up and down, but what about left and right? They follow the air currents. They just follow the air currents, so they don't know exactly where they're going to go on this trip. I think they have measurements to figure out okay. the direction. Lolly, have you had some of your travelers take the balloon ride? Yes. And how is their experience generally? People love it. Yeah. And as Gail says, it's a little expensive, but... If you can afford it, you should try it. Well, it's just uh, it's twi- it's it's twice awesome. as expensive as a gondola ride in Venice. I suppose that's uh, quite an experience to have once in your life. Uh, how many people in a balloon generally? Depends on the balloon company and the balloon that you're using. Some balloon companies are smaller and don't cater mass travel Well, there's six industry. or eight people on a balloon? or, or Those what? are the more expensive companies, six to eight oh. in, a, in a basket. And the cheaper ones? Cheaper ones can hold up to 20 people. 20 people on a balloon blowing Mm -hmm. across Cappadocia Mm -hmm. in the middle of Turkey. Try not to land on one of those ferry chimneys. The pilots are very talented, actually. They land exactly on the spot they should. Is it safe? Have people ever uh, been hurt doing this? It is fairly safe, but yes, in the past there had been some accidents with with some injuries. Gail, did you feel safe? Uh, Yes, I did. I would have been nervous. I I was, but it was an unbelievable experience. So you'd say it's a risk worth taking? Worth taking, well worth taking. Gail, when you were in Cappadocia, tell me about uh, not just this uh, cave dwellers and not this bizarre uh, geology, but what about the towns that you were visiting and the markets and and the contemporary lifestyles? Um, It was probably what you would find in most rural-type areas. There were towns of people, and they had little markets. Mostly we saw the souvenir kind of market places. So a fair amount of tourism. Yes. And what was the sightseeing highlight for you, other than the balloon ride? Probably going into the underground caves to see where people lived. And it amazed me that during those times that they could carve out these caves and passageways and... We often had to duck going through it so you wouldn't hit your head. But they would have fires down there. They had, like they said, churches. They had kitchens. Quite remarkable engineering, really, to have thousands of people living underground when you figure sewage and uh, ventilation and smoke and fires and cooking and animals and old people and young people. Yes, it was. All right. Gail, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Lolly in Thailand, when we're thinking about Cappadocia, 
and we're thinking of this desolate, in the middle of nowhere terrain, were the Christians who were fleeing persecution, did they have any part of this sort of a history of Cappadocia? Yes. Uh, in the first century AD, as they were fleeing from the Romans, those that were in knowledge of existence of Cappadocia took shelter in Cappadocia, enlarged the underground cities that had already been existing, and um, for a while, I should say, till the 4th century AD, they carried on a life that's kind of under the ground, mm -hmm. safer, and only started enjoying freedom of being under the sun after the 4th century AD. So for several centuries, these yes. communities, just not because there was an imminent problem, but they just thought, in general, it's better if we lay low, literally. They laid low until Very Constantine low. the Great. Legalized Christianity. Exactly. The year, what, 310 or something, 312 or something like that. Thailand, if you're in Cappadocia and you're inspired by all of these troglodyte historical cave dwellings, talk about ways a tourist can actually sleep in a cave. Are there any, any hotels that give you that experience? There are. There are quite a lot, actually. We see a lot more uh, being modernized, rebuilt, refurbished, and better accommodations now they can... But there are little humble, little boutique there hotels are, that give are. you this troglodyte there experience. Are. Well, sometimes a villager lady just opens up her house for people to stay in. Oh, like a bed and breakfast sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. What's the word for bed and breakfast in Turkey? Pension. Pension. Yep. And you actually see that. Yep. Pension. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about traveling in the heartland of Turkey, Cappadocia. My favorite town in Cappadocia is Guzelyurt. I believe Guzelyurt means... Beautiful, the beautiful land. The beautiful land. Lolly, when you're in Guzelyurt, what are you likely to see as a way of connecting with a traditional community? To feel like you're... Uh, to me, it was a timeless town. First of all, what I'd like to say is that Guzelyurt is a place... It feels as if time stopped in the 12th century A.D., it really is. And um, a good way to make friends, mingle with the locals, would be to go to the center of the village where there are shops, a tea shop. Go into the shops, join people as they do their shopping. It can be the butcher shop, the barber shop. Have a so shave. Have a shave. Go to a tea house, play backgammon with some exactly, people. Exactly, that would be the way. Or if you're in Guzalyurt in a weekend, I would suggest to stroll the streets because there are some public fountains where women go out to wash their weekly laundry. Still? Still. And this must be a sort of a community gathering place is, for the women. It is. Mornings on the weekends. I understand. This is where Gregorian chants originated, or what's the story about early church music there? St. Gregory is from Cappadocia. As in Gregorian chants? Yes. Local of Cappadocia, a village called Nazians, which is just a few kilometers, miles from Guzalyurt. And St. Gregory lived his life in the village of Guzalyurt. And there's a church which we know that was built by St. Gregory himself. And many of the principles of the Orthodox Church started out from that church with the practices that St. Gregory himself initiated. So there's amazing history. There's amazing contemporary, vivid slices of life. There's yes. amazing just natural sightseeing as you travel around Cappadocia. Thailand, if somebody is interested in checking out Cappadocia, first of all, how big is the region and what's the best way to get there? Um, the size of uh, Yellowstone, as a comparison. It's like a national park almost. Yeah. Uh, how do we get there? Well, from Istanbul, every day we have flights to two cities, Nevşehir and Kayseri, which Kayseri is a much bigger uh, city than Nevşehir. So easy flights from Istanbul easy flights, to Kaiser and from there buses to the, from, the various from towns. Various. You can take a bus, an hour takes an about. In Lali, I understand Turkey is pretty much a high plateau. Central Turkey is. Central Turkey. So you'll have different weather than on the coast. How would the weather compare? Cappadocia has a dry climate, which mm -hmm. is cold in the winter and hot in the summer. But neither the cold nor the heat in the summer bothers you because it's dry. Okay, Lali, I found my beautiful little troglodyte guest house and I'm in Cappadocia, and I'm going to have a breakfast that's typical of this region. What would I have for breakfast? There would be cucumbers, tomatoes, olives, few kinds of cheese, butter, homemade jam, honey, and very delicious fresh bread. And tea. Nice. In Thailand, after my hike down the valley and climbing through some of these troglodyte communities, what would I have for lunch? For lunch, you'll probably get a pottery kebab. 
A pottery kebab, what is that? A pottery kebab, they cook a stew, actually, kind of like a stew, inside a clay pot. They seal it and they just cook it for hours. They serve you. Before they serve you, they have to break the pot so that you can get your lunch. Sounds like a beautiful and tasty region to check out. Thailand Tashbashi and Lali Aran, Teshekur. Thank you, Rick. I say Teshekur, right? Yes. Teshekur. Rijaydiris. Bishaydil. Send us a snapshot from your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. There's a link in the 15 Seconds of Fame box in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are some recent submissions from listeners just like you. A number of listeners to travel with Rick Steves are taking road trips and sending us a haiku to describe the impressions it made on them. Mary Manor of Traverse City, Michigan, hit the road for a camping trip. Here's what she brought back. Borrowed tent road trip. The old canvas bag unzipped, duct tape and twig poles. Monica Smith of West Liberty, Ohio, wrote this haiku about a trip to the Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. Where canyon meets crag, a Mesa Verde Monet forms his skillful art. And Ann Spears from Vashon Island, Washington, sums up her road trip vacation. Parallel yellow lines floating on hot asphalt. This year, my river. We'd enjoy hearing about your travels in an original haiku. Look for the link to your 15 seconds of fame in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. We've arranged many of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Istanbul, Athens, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com. <laughs>